You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the prophet Nahum. Uh, towards the end of your Old Testament, the prophet Nahum uh, is where we're going to spend our time together. If uh, this is your first time with us, my name's Ethan. I'm the pastor here. And over the last several weeks, uh, we've been walking book by book through uh, the minor prophets, uh, just taking one minor prophet a week uh, and studying and seeing oh, what is the Lord saying to us? What is the Lord saying uh, to the original audience? And what does this mean uh, for our lives today? And so this morning, uh, we're going to zero in and take some time uh, to look at the prophet Nahum. Uh, Nahum uh, towards the, the second half of, uh, of the Minor Prophets. And now, there are times uh, when evil seems indestructible. Uh, maybe you think about Nazi Germany. Maybe you think about Imperial Japan or maybe even the Soviet Union. And uh, you think back on these empires, these, uh, these great militaries, and uh, in the moment we wonder, right, what, what's going to happen? Uh, maybe some of you, uh, you've been watching what's happening in Russia and you've been wondering, is, is he going to stop, right? Is it going to end? Yet we see time and again uh, that evil doesn't last forever. Uh, the first time I read this book this week, I'll be honest with you, uh, I got a little nervous. Now, uh, because I'm committed to a certain way of preaching, uh, I'm committed to never skipping over the hard parts uh, of God's Word. And as I was reading through the book of Nahum, I, I got a little nervous, but soon I realized, man, this is good news for us today. Uh, this is good news for us today. As we, we look here at the book of Nahum, we see this point, that the evil in the world is no match for the power of God. The evil in the world is no match for the power of God. And, and as I was reading this book this week, I, I was wrestling through it. Then on Friday, the Supreme Court handed down their decision, Amen. right? And I know that there's a lot of emotion that comes in this. There's a lot of whatever it may be. Um, but I'm praising the Lord this morning. Uh, that we're waking up in a country where it's a little safer to be a baby in the womb. And so as we look at this book this morning, we're going to see how God works to overcome sin and evil that we see in the world. And what we see is that ultimately that this is good news for us today. And so look with me here at Nahum chapter 1, and we're going to read down to verse 8. So let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Nahum. Uh, the Spirit says to us this morning, starting in verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. 
Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for your grace that is good. Uh, thank you that you are working even now, even when we might not feel it or even when we might not see it, that you are working to overcome the evil of the world. And so, Father, we are greater that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we look here at the book of Nahum, we're going to see several truths about God's power. First, we see this, God's power recognized. God's power recognized. Now, as we've been walking our way through this book of the 12, through the 12 minor prophets, one of the things that, that I've tried to keep in front of us is that the best way to read these books is not as 12 individual books, but instead is 12 parts to one book. And so we want to read them in context of the rest of the, the 12 minor prophets. In fact, the original audience that was reading the 12, that's how they would have understood them. They would have understood these prophets not as 12 individual books, but instead it's 12 prophets who are telling one story. And that one story is about God's plan and purpose to redeem his people for himself. And so as we look here in Nahum, what we have is we have a new emphasis turning the corner. That God is going to punish his enemies for evil and for sin. Now, what's interesting about the book of Nahum is that Nahum uh, is a book of judgment. This is God speaking a word of judgment to Assyria uh, and specifically to Nineveh. So uh, you might hear me say Nineveh and Assyria interchangeably. Uh, the prophecy, the book is addressed to Nineveh, but what we know as we read the rest of this book uh, that this prophecy is directed to Nineveh. But it's directed to Assyria as a whole. So Nineveh is the capital city of, of Assyria. And so it would be very much as if we were to say something about what happens in Washington, D.C., right? What happens in Washington, D.C. is felt throughout the rest of the country. And so uh, that's what's happening here. Now, Nahum is a, a message of judgment, but the name Nahum literally means compassion. There's a bit of irony there, and there's a bit of irony that we're going to see as we look uh, through this book. Now, we're not given much information about Nahum. If you look uh, there uh, in verse 1, it says that the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, we don't really know much about Elkosh. We're not sure where it was located. Uh, there are a few different theories, a few different options of where uh, people might say that, yeah, we think Elkosh was here or uh, we think Elkosh was there, uh, but we're not necessarily sure. And really, that doesn't affect the way that we understand this message because uh, this prophecy of Nahum, it's not to the northern kingdom of Israel or to to the southern kingdom of Israel. Instead, it's to the enemies of Israel. Now, he doesn't give us much to go on as far as when he's writing, but he does give us some clues. We, we know that he's probably writing after 663 BC because in chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about the fall of Thebes, and Thebes fell in 663. 
But we know that he's writing before 626 BC, uh, before Assyria began to weaken. Now you might say, Ethan, why do I need to know that? We need to know that for the test at the end of the message, all right? I'm, I'm just playing. But, but it's helpful to understand what's happening in the world here. That, that Nahum is writing to Assyria, he's writing to Nineveh, and he's not writing to Nineveh when they are in a position of weakness. So it's not as if he's saying, Nineveh, you're going to fall, and the rest of the world is saying, yes, well, obviously. No, he's writing to Nineveh when the rest of the world is saying, Nineveh is too big to fail. Nineveh is too big to fall, and yet the Lord is delivering a dire warning to Nahum. Now, there's one more unique characteristic about the book of Nahum that uh, you need to know, that the rest of the minor prophets, there were prophecies that were spoken. They were preached, and then someone came along later and uh, transcribed them, whether that be the prophet himself or, or whether it be someone who heard his prophecies and then wrote them down. Nahum, though, is different because Nahum was always intended to be a book. If you look there at verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. It was always intended to be a book. And in fact, as you read the book of Nahum, one of the things that you see is you see that he was a literary master. So the imagery that he uses and even the the rhythm that he writes, it has a certain flow. It it has a certain cadence to it. And, And so Nahum starts off, with this vision that we just read in verses 1 to 8. And this vision is really a picture of God's awesome power. Many commentators say that this is a picture of God as a divine warrior going to battle on behalf of his people. In fact, we can't really understand the rest of the book unless we understand these verses. Because these verses, they really, they set the stage for everything that is going to come in the rest of the book. It's stressing God's power and God's sovereignty. So look at verses 4 and 5. There we see the kind of strength that God has. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He, he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Nahum's stressing this point that that God's power doesn't just extend to his people, it extends to all of creation, that no one can stand before this God. And and as we read these verses, you might read it and think, even where's the good news in this? Where's the good news that this great God is angry? Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so Nahum, he's, he's building this case. Right? He, he, he's painting this picture for what is our God like? What does he look like? And he, he paints this picture, and this is a picture of a strong and a mighty and a powerful God. We, we might say no wimpy gods allowed, right? Because our God isn't puny. And so he paints this picture. But then he slides verse 7 in there as a reminder, right, that the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So it's as if he's saying, if you take refuge in the Lord, you have nothing to fear. If your refuge, if your security is in the Lord, then, then you don't have anything to worry about. But if it's not, be warned. Look at verse 8. But with an overflowing flood... He will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. 
Now, these, these first eight verses, these are really the key to understanding the book. What's happening here is Nahum is, he's providing, he's preparing the audience for the God they are going to encounter. Uh, I wonder if when you've been at a theme park, have you ever listened to the warnings that come on while you're on the ride? Or, or maybe, maybe you've, you've read the, the warnings as you step into the line at first, right? That, that if you are pregnant or might be pregnant or think you could be pregnant, don't ride this thing. Right? If, if you have a heart condition or think you might have a heart condition or you know someone with a heart condition, don't ride this thing. Right? And by the time you get to the ride, you're thinking, like, I think I might have a heart condition. Right? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, but it, could, it, it could be right. That, that there's all of these warnings. If, if you, flashing lights, if you're sensitive to flashing lights, don't ride. If you're sensitive to screaming kids, don't ride. If you're, you're sensitive to this, don't ride. It, it kind of sounds like a warning for parenthood, doesn't it? Right? Like, like if you're sensitive to these things, then don't, don't, don't ride. Because they're warning you about what you're about to experience, right? You're not about to ride the, the race cars at Disney World. You're not about to ride the teacups. You're about to ride a roller coaster, right? You're going to take off. It's 60 miles an hour. You're not going to know up from down. It's going to be terrifying. What Nahum is doing here is he's saying, Nineveh, listen. It is about to be terrifying. Because this God that you have sinned against, this God who you have come against, this God who you have picked a battle with, this God is terrifying. This God is strong. This God is mighty. And this God is not here to play. That this God means business. That this God is serious. See, this is a warning for Nineveh but it's also a reminder for us. We need to be reminded that we do not worship a puny or a weak or an anemic God. We do not worship a God that is indifferent to evil or to sin, but we worship a God, we serve a God who takes evil and who takes sin seriously. We worship a God who doesn't just take Nineveh's sin seriously. He takes our sin seriously. See, he, he doesn't just take their sin seriously. He, he, he takes our sins seriously. See, I, I think that we do well to celebrate the news that we got on Friday. But if we are not willing to double down on our care for the orphan and for mothers and families in crisis, then we are hypocrites. And so on Friday, what happened is that we as Central Church, we just doubled down on our care for the fatherless. We just doubled down on our care for mothers in crisis. We just doubled down on our seriousness about caring for orphans and widows and their affliction. Because if we do not, God takes our sins of omission just as seriously as he takes their sins of commission, right? And so we have to take this seriously and we're driven to this because we worship a God who is holy and who is mighty and who is righteous, but we also worship a God who is all of those things and who is a father to the fatherless. 
That just as you and I, if we are following Jesus, we have been adopted by a heavenly father, then what that means is that all of us, you and me, we all at one time or another were spiritual orphans. And because we were spiritual orphans, we've been adopted by a loving father. That should drive us to care for physical orphans. Right, that should drive us to care for the fatherless. And so we have to recognize God's power, not only against their sin, we've got to recognize God's power against where we have been indifferent and where we have turned a blind eye to the needs of those around us. And so as we look at this passage, we see God's power recognized. Next, we see this, we see God's power realized. Now, Nahum begins his book with this vision for a purpose. He's not painting this picture of who God is and what God is like just so that we'll have it. No, no, he begins with a purpose. He wants the people to know what kind of God they're dealing with. And so in chapter two, he, he gives us this poetically graphic depiction of Nineveh's fall. Look at verses three and four of Nahum chapter two. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. What this is, is this is a picture of the invasion that has come upon Nineveh. This is a pic of the approaching, uh, approaching army ready to inflict pain on Nineveh. This is a picture of intimidation. In verse 3, the, the shield of his mighty man is red. His, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The, the chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. So what this is, is this is a picture of the army that is approaching. This is a picture of the Babylonian army that is, that is coming to wage war against Nineveh. But this isn't an army that just looks the part. This is an army that can fight. The chariots race through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. They're ready to do battle. Look at verse 4. There's a skill that's happening here. But they don't come. They, they haven't come just to destroy the city and leave. No, they, they've come to loot the city. So look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. See, Nineveh was known for its riches. It, it was known for its riches that were stored in its treasury, but it was also known for how it got the riches. Nineveh didn't get the riches because it was necessarily in rich and fertile ground. Nineveh wasn't made wealthy by their industry or by their trade. Nineveh was made wealthy because they would go to neighboring nations, they would go uh, to different villages, they would go to different kingdoms, and they would say, you can pay us or we will kill you. And so they would take that money, and they were the bullies of the ancient Near East, that you can pay us for protection or we will destroy you, we will wipe you out. And yet here, Nineveh is exploited. The plunderer has become the plundered. And why is he doing this? Well, look back at verse 2 of chapter 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. 
For plunders have plundered them and ruined their branches. And so what we see here in chapter 2 is that what's happening is, is the Lord is coming against Nineveh. He's, he's coming against Assyria for the great evil that they have practiced. Now what's great about what I think is, it's actually kind of funny about this passage is the Lord ends with a taunt. He, he taunts Nineveh. He, he wants them to understand that he is better than they are, that he is stronger than they are, that he is mightier than they are. So look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his calves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Now, if you, you read all of chapter 2, if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, these lions come out of nowhere. Why all of a sudden is the Lord talking about lions? Well, the reason he starts talking about lions is because it was well known that the kings of Assyria and the generations immediately before this prophecy, that they often referred to themselves as lions. So if you were to read the history books, you would read where, where one ruler of Assyria would say that he was a potent lion. Another leader of Assyria would say that he was a wild lion who was lordly with frightfulness. Another would say that he rages like a lion. And so here in verses 11, 12, and 13, the Lord says, yes, Assyria, you've been like a lion who deals violently with the prey. But then in verse 13, what happens? He makes a promise, right? He says, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. And so he paints this picture of, of these rulers, these, these kings of Assyria, that, that they would deal harshly with their enemies, that they would rip them apart, that they would, that they would get fat and they would get wealthy and they would, they would satisfy themselves on their enemies, on these nations and these kingdoms that they would invade. And the Lord says, yes, Assyria, you have done that, but Assyria, there is coming a day when I am going to kill the lion, right? Where I am going to kill the beast. And so Assyria just wait. See, in the, the ancient world, Assyria was the embodiment of evil. And as we, we've seen in the weeks past, they relished that reputation. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed being known as the bad boys of the world. But Nahum, we see that God always has the final say. I'm sure that there were times when Israel felt forgotten. I'm sure that there are times when Israel wondered, Lord, why are you letting Assyria grow? Why are you letting Assyria rage? But Nahum reminds us that God always wins. In fact, one of the things that, that helped me kind of put this book together, helped me understand this book, was whenever I read that, that Nahum really has the same message as the book of Revelation in the New Testament. 
See, the book of Revelation in the New Testament is not primarily concerned about what is going to happen and the timing of all of that when Jesus returns. Revelation is primarily concerned with the truth that in the end, God wins. So it doesn't matter what happens because in the end, God wins. And if God wins, then his people wins. And so what Nahum is saying is saying, look, there's going to be all of this evil. There's going to be all of this happening. And in the end, God wins. He kills the lion. It's easy to look around the world and see all of the evil and all of the injustice and all of the terrible things that have happened and that are happening. So I was reading Nahum this week. I was reminded of the story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was, was a poet. He was influential in the, um, the days leading up to the Civil War. In 1861, his wife was killed in a tragic accident. His, his wife was killed. Longfellow was napping, and he woke up to find that uh, his wife had spun around in a dress, and her dress had caught on fire. Uh, and when he tried to put the fire out, he was too late. Uh, his wife died, and he suffered uh, disfiguring burns that he would go on to grow a beard uh, to cover his face because he was embarrassed by the scars. In 1863, his son Charlie would leave home on a trip, but what he would fail to tell his father is that he was leaving to join President Lincoln's army. So he took a train from New York City to Washington, D.C. to join with the Union, and as soon as Longfellow found out, he started pulling strings to have Charlie moved from the front lines into a a, a more comfortable, a, a safer environment, and yet Charlie would have none of it. Charlie would ultimately suffer typhoid fever. He would come home, he would recover, and then he would go back to the battlefield. And when he returned to the battlefield, uh, he would suffer a wound where he was shot uh, and his spinal cord was hit, leaving him temporarily paralyzed. And when Longfellow heard this news, when he got this news, he, he immediately left on a train to Virginia to go and to meet Charlie to care for him. And Christmas was fast approaching. On December 1st, he's sitting in the hospital, and he hears church bells ring. And he hears these church bells ring, and he starts writing about how the injustice and the sin and the evil in the world mocks the promise of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And so Longfellow goes on to pen a poem that would become a song that today we know as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And in this poem, in this song, he goes through and he he talks about just how dark and how bleak the world looks, and yet he ends with confident hope. He ends with this. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. See, that's the story of Nahum. The story of Nahum is that as bad and as sinful and as evil as the world may look, as evil as it may appear that things are going, that in the end, God wins. That in the end, God is a mighty, strong, and sovereign God. And so this is where the question comes up, right? Well, Ethan, why Why is there still sin and evil in the world? Well, I'm not God, right? So so I can't answer for him. But here's what I know. That there's sin in the world. That God has promised to 
fully and finally defeat sin and evil. That God is powerful enough to fully and finally defeat sin and evil. He has not done it, but all that means is that he has not done it yet, right? And really, what it actually means is that he has begun it because on the cross, right, Jesus conquered sin and he conquered death. And so even now, God is working to redeem and restore all that evil has destroyed. Because know this, that the evil in the world is no match for the power of God. We might look around, we might see the evil in the world. We might look around, we might see what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine and and, and the atrocities he's committed against his own people in Russia. But here's what we need to remember, that Vladimir Putin one day will stand before a holy and a righteous and a serious God, right? That we might look around and we might see all of this evil and all of this injustice, but we can take comfort knowing that we have a just God. We have a good God. And because we have a just God and because we have a good God, that he is working even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, because Genesis 50, 20 tells us what? It tells us this, that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is good news for us today. That is good news for us this morning. And so we see in this passage, we see God's power recognized, we see God's power realized, and finally we see this, we see God's power released. Now Nahum ends with a reminder of why God would release his power on Nineveh. Why would God release his power on Nineveh? God releases his power, he releases his judgment on Nineveh because they deserve it. Look at chapter 3, look at verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 7. This is a woe oracle. So this is is the Lord speaking, and it's, it's really like a judgment upon Nineveh. He says this, he says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Now this oracle, it's it's really summarized there in verse 1, woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. Verses 2 and 3, what we have is we have a picture of a typical Assyrian military conquest. It was violent and it was cruel. They didn't just stop whenever they had won. They stopped whenever they felt like they had inflicted enough damage and enough pain to quill the spirits of the people, to keep them from wanting to rise up again. In in verse 4, we've got this, this description of the way that Assyria would deal with other nations, that they would deceive them. They would promise them one thing, but they were like a prostitute. They were graceful, but with deadly charms who betrayed nations and who betrayed people. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, what we have there is we have what their cruelty earns them. See, the Lord doesn't just promise to destroy Assyria. 
He, he doesn't just promise to destroy Nineveh. He promises to embarrass them. He, and he promises to embarrass them by replacing their pride with shame. See, chapter 3 is really a call for Nineveh to prepare for their downfall. It's a call to Nineveh to prepare for what is going to happen. Now, we can look at this and we can wonder, okay, what releases God's power? What releases God's judgment? Well, when we look at Assyria, when we look at Nineveh, I think we can say that it's this, that it's evil powered by pride. See, Nineveh believed that they were indestructible. Nineveh believed that they were strong and that they were great and that they were mighty. And because they were so strong and because they were so great and because they were so mighty, then they had nothing to fear, that they could do whatever they wanted. But here's the thing. They had never met the God of Israel, right? They had never met the God of Israel who was against them. See, what God does here is he shows that their pride was in all of the wrong things. Nineveh was like the Titanic of their day. The engineers and the crew of Titanic, they believed, right, that the ship was unsinkable. There's that famous line in the movie. I did a little reading on it this week, and it's rumored that there was actually a Captain Edward John Smith who said it, that even God himself could not sink this ship. And where's the Titanic today? Right? What's amazing is it, is it wasn't just the engineers and the designers and the crew of the ship that believed that the ship couldn't go down, but it was also the people. One survivor, he wrote this. He says, the sense of fear came to passengers very slowly, a result of the absence of any signs of danger. Now, remember how we started. Remember, we said that Nahum is writing to Nineveh, not when they're in a place of weakness. Not when they're in a place wondering what's their future look like. He writes to Nineveh when they're in a place of strength. He writes to Nineveh when their stock market just keeps climbing. Right? Their 401ks just keep getting better. Their military just keeps getting stronger. And so he writes to them and he says, hey, Nineveh, I know things feel good right now, but there's coming a day where it's not going to be good. There's coming a day where it's not going to be nice. And so Nahum is a reminder that the evil of the world is no match for the power of God. And it's a warning to us of the danger of pride. See, we might not look like the Ninevites in every way, but here's something that every one of us in this room struggles with. Every one of us in this room struggles with pride. Now, pride isn't always easy to define, but here's the thing. We know it when we see it right? It, we might not be able to, to summarize it in a sentence, but, but we know it whenever we see it. So as I was thinking about pride this week, I did a little reading on it, and this was the definition that I came up with as simple as I could. Pride is misplaced confidence. It, it's confidence in all of the wrong things. See, that's what Nineveh had done. They had placed their confidence in the strength of their military. They had placed their confidence in the strength of their brutality. They had placed their confidence in the strength of what they could do, and they had failed to heed the warning. Remember back to the book of Jonah? Who did Jonah preach to? He preached to Nineveh. What happened? It, it appears that Nineveh repented, right? That's what Jonah tells us, that Nineveh had repented, that they had turned from their sin. And yet here, Nineveh is right back where they started. 
See, confidence in the wrong things affects everything. It causes us to worship the wrong things. And here's the thing. When we misplace our worship, things always go bad. When we misplace our worship, life always goes bad. This is a reminder to us that our confidence, our pride, it cannot be in ourselves or in anything else. It must be in God. See, Nahum is a reminder for us that the evil of the world is no match for the power of God. But what Nahum is, is Nahum is just a taste of the judgment of God. Nahum is just a taste of what happens to a city. What happens to a nation that, that fails to not only honor God, but that seeks to inflict their sin and their brutality on the world? Nahum is a picture of what Jesus promises in Revelation 19. See, ultimately, that's where Nahum is pointing us. Nahum is pointing us not just to the judgment and the justice of God for Nineveh. It's pointing to the justice and the judgment of God for evil and sin. In Revelation 19, we get this picture of Jesus riding in on a white horse. His, his robe is dipped in blood. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords on his thighs. And he is come. He is riding what the Bible says to tread the winepress of the fury of God against the nations. See, Nahum is just a small picture of what that is going to look like. There's good news in Nahum and in Revelation 19 that Jesus will fully and finally defeat his enemies. See, the bad news is, is that apart from faith in Christ, we are his enemies. But the good news is, is that when we put our faith and our trust and our hope and our confidence in Christ, then Nahum 1.7 becomes true for us, that the Lord is good a stronghold in the, the day of trouble, that he knows those who take refuge in him. See, if we've trusted Christ, then on that day, we do not fear, but instead the picture that the Bible gives us is that on that day, that we rule and we reign with him. That, that on that day, the army of Christ rides in behind him. But here's the thing, we don't fight because our God is powerful. Right? We don't fight because Christ does the war, that, that Christ wages the war, that Christ is not just the warrior, but he's the weapon. But the Bible is clear that apart from faith in Christ, that on that day, that final day of the Lord, on that day, that apart from faith in Christ, that we have everything to fear. But with faith in Christ, we have every reason to hope. That on that day, if our faith and our hope and our trust is rooted and is found in Jesus Christ, then we don't have to expect, we, we don't have to anticipate judgment. Instead, we get grace and we get glory. That, that on that day, that when Jesus defeats evil and he defeats sin and he defeats death, we get to watch and we get to celebrate that he is good and he is strong and he is mighty. See, on that day, it's good news for God's people. 
But for those who have failed or refused to trust God, for those who have rebelled in their sin and unrighteousness, for those who have rebelled in their evil ways, which is all of us apart from Christ, me, you, all of us apart from Christ, we walk in our sin and our evil. The the message of Jesus for you and for me today is it doesn't have to be that way. See, your story doesn't have to end with judgment. It can end with grace. That on the cross, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved. He was buried and he rose again three days later, conquering sin and conquering death. And that if we'll put our hope, if we'll put our faith, if we'll put our trust in him, then we can be forgiven, we can get grace, and we can have no reason to fear. So maybe this morning, maybe you say, Ethan, I need some of that. I need some of that grace. I I need some of that mercy. I I need some of that. I need some of that hope. And we would love to talk with you. You've come to the right place. You can send a text. We'll have a number on the screen here in just a minute. You can send a text to 407-338-4024. And that's not a robot that you're texting. That's another person on the other end of that line ready to talk with you. The end of this in this service, you can walk right out these doors. You can go to our next steps room. There's people in there ready to talk with you, ready to pray with you. At the end of the service, you can come find me. I'll be right down front. Love to talk with you and pray with you about what does it look like to trust Jesus? Or maybe this morning, maybe this morning, you and I just need to give glory to God that though our future was once judgment because of Jesus, it's now grace. That though our sins were many, his mercy was more. And that because of what Jesus has done, we can bring our sin, we can bring our pain, we can bring our struggles to the feet of the king. And we can cry out for help in our time of need. And because of what Jesus has done, we don't fear judgment, but we get grace. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and we're going to respond to this grace, this good news that God has given us. Would you, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you have not left this world to rot in evil. Father, thank you that you have not left this world, uh, you've not left your people uh, to just figure out how do we deal with evil on our own. But Father, we know that there is coming a day, and that day has already begun, where you will fully and finally stomp out evil because the evil and the sin in the world is no match for the power of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to take you seriously that you would help us to see you as a holy and a righteous and a mighty God, but God, that you would also help us to see and to know and to taste that you are good, that you are a stronghold in the day of trouble, and that you give us grace when we need it. And so, Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who have never experienced your grace. Lord, I pray that today would be the day. And Father, I pray for those of us who have experienced your grace. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would experience, we would taste, we would see your grace in a new way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.